Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Somebody asked me recently, you know, what is the church doing at a time like this? And um, I, I just think uh, these, this is what the church is doing. The church is getting involved in very practical ways. The church is trying to find ways to serve, trying to find ways to fill the gaps. And, uh, and so thank you for the team of people that have been responding in such a practical way. And I, I always believe the gospel is supposed to be practical and, uh, and so we're celebrating and thinking about that together. Now, this morning, I, I brought my phone up with me, and I'm live with you, uh, and I can see what's happening. And I've been thinking about this uh, truth, and that is I, I'm always wanting you to respond. I'm always wanting a little feedback. And, uh, and so uh, just if you feel an amen, I, I know sometimes in church you would be really shy to say that. Uh, uh, but you know now you can just do a thumbs up or a heart emoji or you could say amen or you could be involved in some way and uh, and so as we as we think a little bit this morning about this reality that we're in this together and we're together in discipleship and we're together in discipleship in a really unique way and I know there's this tendency for us to desire to be independent that there's a part of us that wants to be self-sufficient we want to be okay but but I think this season is demonstrating to us how much that's really not true. We're, we're not really okay all alone. We need each other. We, we need contact. We need friendship. We need relationship. We, we need to be connected with each other. And uh, I, I think about how that works in codependence. We, we don't want to ever get to that side of it where we are uh, a saying that someone else must do something in order for us to be fulfilled or happy. That's that's not it either, but we're choosing something in the middle, an interdependence, where we rely on one another, we're vulnerable to each other, we share with each other, we carry one another's burdens, we, we self-disclose, we tell our stories, uh, we're not afraid to be ourselves, and so we're talking about what this interdependent life, life together really looks like. And, uh, and so let me ask you this question, if I were to ask you what is true north, would you have a ready answer? Would you understand that concept or what that means? It turns out that true north is actually a scientific concept. Uh, Lorraine Mills writes these words, True north differs from magnetic north, which varies from place to place and over time due to local magnetic anomalies. A magnetic compass almost never shows true north. And finding true north is essential for accurate navigation. I, I think that's a good working understanding. So, so when you think about that, if you think about what that means, it means that if you are looking at a, at a compass, it means that's not exactly true north. True north is somewhere else because of the anomalies that happen. In fact, what true north really is, is, is where all the lines of longitude converge. If, if you could follow true north, you would eventually arrive at the northern axis of the earth or the North Pole. And, uh, and it turns out that having a true north is really important in all kinds of navigation. Uh, Bill George writes these words, not about a literal true north, but about the metaphorical true north. True north is your orienting point. It's your fixed point in a spinning world that helps you stay on track. It's derived from your most deeply held beliefs and values and principles. 
It is your internal compass. It's unique to you, representing who you are at the deepest level. And so I, I just wanted to talk a little bit as we open this morning about true north and about what it means and about this metaphorical reality of what your true north and my true north might look like. Now, immediately, I would think that our true north then would be God's word. And, uh, and I start to think about that, and I think, yeah, sure, that's the obvious answer. But I think in a real theological fine point, it's not the right answer. It's not the one that we would probably really want to focus on. See, the Word of God is, is a book of revelation. It's revealing something. It's leading us somewhere. It's taking us forward. It, it seems like if you stop for a moment and you thought about it, then then true north is not really the Word of God because the Word of God is revealing us and moving us and pointing us in a different... The Pharisees had made Scripture their true north, and in making Scripture their true north, they had lost sight of who God was so that when Jesus showed up, God in human flesh, they didn't recognize Him. They so had begun to worship something besides the real true north that they missed it when it happened. And they became hard-hearted, and they became callous, and they became legalistic, and they became people that we don't want to be. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can't participate in the kingdom of God. And so our true north is, is through the word into this person of Jesus Christ who's the full revelation of God. Now, that may seem like we're just kind of splitting hairs this morning, but let me tell you why that matters. It matters because our true north is a relationship, not a religion. Our true north is something that is alive. It's not static. It's something that continues to evolve and change, and, and it's something that continues to be alive, and it adapts to the surrounding circumstances, and it's so vital for us to be in relationship with God, to be hearing Him, to be sensing His presence, to be coming together and, and, and making this relationship with Jesus Christ our true north. We were built for relationship. We were built for community. We were built for interdependence. And so as we think about that this morning and what that looks like, uh, I think it so, so matters that we keep Jesus as our true north. Now, I, I'm going to say this, all that said, I'm not very good at keeping Jesus true north. And I think for a lot of us, we struggle with this, keeping the relationship with Jesus Christ our true north. And if it makes you feel any better, it seems like the disciples... And the original disciples weren't all that good at it either. And so as we think about it together, I'd like for us to do a a little bit of a character study about the disciples, specifically about Peter and Judas and John, as we kind of celebrate and think about the interdependence together in discipleship and what that looks like. I I don't know about you, but uh, we're watching more TV uh, today because... we have to or we don't have anything else to do or something like that. And I don't know how it's going in, in uh, your world, but I, I do see these posts on Facebook and, and get messages about what are you watching and, you know, is there another show? Can you recommend something? And, and uh, with this whole phenomenon of live streaming, there's something going on that I think is kind of interesting, and that is we're being exposed to some slices of humanity that might not be um, our finest hour. Um, it seems like a lot of what's being, you know, put out as entertainment, it's, uh, it's kind of depressing. 
Uh, it seems like there's a lot of things going on, and underneath the surface in some of the subcultures around our country and world, you're kind of like, yikes, it's, a, it's kind of overwhelming. There's a scandalous nature to what goes on among human beings. And I think what's interesting about that is that when I read the biblical account, the real biblical account, the one that's raw and human and emotional and fallible, I I see the same kind of drama unfolding. I I think you could realistically say that this biblical story is a story of scandal. It's a story of investigative reporting. It's a story that has all of the drama of humanity. Now, I'll be honest, and it feels like for a lot of us, we sanitize God's Word as we read it. We clean it up in our minds. We we, we sort of wrap it up in some kind of holy garment or lighting, and everything sort of shines differently. But if we ever read with real emotion, these are raw stories. They involve real humans who have melodramatic moments and sad moments, and they have breakthroughs and setbacks, and they fail horribly, and they come through courageously. It's a very, very human story. And so I want you to just listen for a moment as we think about Peter and his humanity captured for us in Matthew's retelling in chapter 16 of his gospel. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, skipping ahead to 21, and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, and you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Listen, that is a quick transition. To go from a moment in which Jesus looks at Peter and says, blessed are you, uh, man did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, just to a few moments later to say to Peter, Uh, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. And it just, I think, highlights the reality of what discipleship looked like for Peter. It it was this massive pendulum swing from one extreme to the other. And as we kind of think about that and we, we think about the high highs and the low lows, it's not just Peter. All the disciples seem to kind of not get the scope of the mission and purpose. Listen to what Matthew writes in verse 17. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. And then the disciples asked, came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, Because you have so little faith. Surely I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible. So this scene in which the disciples are trying, and they're trying to figure it out, and yeah, and they can't seem to grasp even the fundamentals. And in the frustration of Jesus, he's, he's speaking to them and saying, do you not get it? Do you not understand what's going on? I think as we approach the crucifixion 
uh, drama. The story goes from being kind of a soap opera to an investigative report. And so listen to this story as it unfolds and think about yourself and your own spirit and attitude and the feelings that must be unfolding inside of Peter and inside of Judas in these moments. Matthew 26 now. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him, uh, arrived with him a large crowd armed with swords and clubs and sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. And then the man stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in the place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with the swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. As the story continues to unfold now, uh, Matthew twenty six sixty nine. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl caught, came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And then he went out to the gateway and where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it again with an oath, I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Now, I know this is a lot of scripture for a sermon, but bear with me because I want to add one more person into this character study of disciples, and that is John. Listen to what he writes in his own gospel, John 19. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Three disciples in the unfolding drama of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All disciples, they're very different in their personalities, their temperaments, their strengths, and their weaknesses. And this morning, what I'd like for you to imagine with me is that they comprise a continuum. And on one end, you have Peter. And on the other hand, you have Judas. And in the middle, you have John. And I put Peter on one end and Judas on the other, not because they're such polar opposites. In fact, they're very much alike, but just because they are so very different in some ways. And so think with me about them. The first thing I would tell you is Peter is an all or nothing disciple. He's an all-or-nothing disciple. Peter is the person that is all in. He, he, he is active in such unique ways. So Matthew doesn't tell us their names. He's telling us about the story in the garden, and he, he doesn't name names. Now, scholars believe um, that the reason that Matthew doesn't name names is because Matthew's gospel was written earlier and, and that there was still a danger to those people. 
John's gospel was written a lot later, and John names names. So we, we find out later on in John's story that it was Peter that drew the sword. And we even find out the name of the servant of the high priest. We find out it was Peter who reacted courageously, who responded, who was so willing, who was impassioned in that moment. And then we find Peter in that next moment denying that he ever knew Jesus. And that sort of sums up the life of Peter. He was an all-or-nothing kind of disciple. Think about it. At one moment, blessed are you, Peter, for man did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then just moments later, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. He's an all-or-nothing disciple. Peter is the guy that in one moment he's committing all kinds of things to God. He's, he, he, he's sacrificing things. He's putting himself out there. He's, he's making all kinds of promises. And in the next moment, he's trying to figure out if it makes any sense at all. He's trying to remember why he said all those things. He's doubting. It's Peter who impulsively is the one who says, if it is you, let me get out of the boat and walk on the water. And then it's Peter moments later sinking because he's not looking at Jesus anymore. He's in the wind and the waves. And I don't know about you, but man, we are together in discipleship. There's a lot of us who live in this space where it's all or nothing, where we have these big surges of commitment. We have these big impassioned moments in which we have insight and clarity and, and understanding and, and, and we're going to do these things and we're committing and we're promising and then... Doubt sweeps us over and we, we swing back into some of this all or nothing kind of life of discipleship. And I, all I want to say to you is we're in this together. We reflect these things together. Peter's story is here because we reflect together the reality of this is what happens to people in their seeking and in their walk with Jesus. The second person that we look at is on the other end of the continuum, and that's Judas. It's not just that Judas has become this person that we uh, think so, well, we've made him the villain of so many things. So there's, there's an interesting thing going on when you begin to dissect the language and the content of what's happening in Matthew's account of the story. And in Judas, what we have is a disciple who is manipulative, and desperate. So in Matthew's gospel, we have this interesting thing going on that's really causing scholars to rethink the character of Judas and who he is and why he acted in the way he did. And, and that comes in this sequence in which we're told that he had planned a signal that was a kiss, and then he arrived and he kissed Jesus on the cheek. At the beginning of that little passage where the first word for kiss is the typical word for a kiss in Greek, nothing special about it. It's just the one I kiss will be the one. But that second word, when he kissed Jesus on the cheek, is a unique word in Greek. And it's a word that would be appropriate for a disciple kissing a rabbi, that would be appropriate containing deep meaning and affection. That there's a genuineness to that second kiss in which scholars are now starting to step back and say, well, it seems like maybe what Judas was doing was forcing Jesus to act. That what Judas thought in his head and in his heart is that he was actually going to push Jesus into a position to do what he thought needed to be done. That 
that Judas wanted Jesus to fix things that were broken, that Judas wanted Jesus to right the wrongs, that Judas wanted Jesus to go ahead and fix the things that needed to be fixed, to heal the things that he thought needed to be healed. And Jesus was not doing it the way Judas wanted it done. And he was becoming increasingly frustrated with Jesus' lack of attention. And so he began to think, you know, I'm not really crazy about this whole suffering servant model. I'm not really crazy about this turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. I, I, I want Jesus to act, and I think I can make him act if I set up a scenario in which Jesus is forced to do what I think he ought to do. Aren't you glad that you and I are not like that? That we're not manipulative in our discipleship, where we're not trying to maneuver Jesus into a place where he does what we think he needs to do. And then when things don't turn out the way Judas thought they would, when that manipulation leads to the death of Jesus instead of the victory of Jesus, at least in his mind, he becomes desperate. He's manipulative and then he's desperate. Desperate. Desperate to the point that he takes his own life. And I can't help but think that, that as Jesus explains it, as Jesus rebukes Peter and tells him to put away the sword, as Jesus stands in that moment and says, do you not think that God has put at my disposal legions of angels? Do you not understand that this must unfold in this way in order for the Scripture to be fulfilled? It just seems to me that if Judas would have been a little more patient, that if he could have made it through Holy Saturday into an Easter Sunday morning, that maybe he would have had a redemptive story the same way Peter has a redemptive story. And I wonder how many times those of us who are manipulative and then desperate, we fall apart for lack of patience. We, we miss something God has in mind for us for lack of patience. We go ahead and move from, from our maneuvering of Jesus into our desperation moments. Instead of waiting patiently, who hopes for what they already have? But if we do not yet have it, we wait for it patiently. And I don't know about you, but I see myself in Peter. I see the all or nothing kind of attitude in so many places, but I see myself in Judas too, manipulative and then desperate, maneuvering and, and, and then impatient. And boy, there's a part of me that emotionally connects with this. Man, what if he could have held on a few more hours, not letting the desperation overtake him? What if he could have been hanging in there just a little longer to see the fulfillment of the promise, to recognize that what he intended for evil, God was using for good. Maybe there could have been a redemptive moment, and maybe the same is true for you and for me. Finally, I, I, I want to focus on John. John, if Peter and, and Judas make up the extremes on each end, then John lands pretty much in the center. He does everything right. Matthew doesn't name names, but we do know once we get to John's story that John was also at the foot of the cross. So, so Matthew names the Marys and the whole group, and then when you read John's gospel, all of those Marys are there, but John's with them. And again, we, we scholars think that Matthew was leaving out the names of the disciples on purpose, not naming names, but John is happy 
And I think this, it also speaks to the reality so that, that John is this faithful one who stands at the cross, who, who stays there, who takes on the mother of Jesus, who, who, who serves and is faithful. But you know, when you read John's gospel, what you find out about John is John, he did all those things, but he needed constant affirmation. He constantly needed us to understand who he was. He constantly needed to understand and tell us what his, what his standing was among the disciples. He constantly needed us to understand his worth and value. And he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he mentions himself over and over in that context and in that way. And I think it just highlights this reality. You, you may look impulsive like a Peter who is all or nothing. And, and you may have this sort of other spirit that just wants Jesus to do what it feels like ought to be done and this deep sense of justice and, and unrest. And then when it doesn't work out, a, a sense of desperation and there's impatience in it. Or you might be a John who does all the right things, who's always doing, but you always want to be appreciated for it and loved for it. And what I'm telling you is that if you took all the other disciples, they would fall somewhere on this continuum. And if you took all of us, we would fall somewhere on this continuum but the rest of the story is this. We don't know a lot about the other disciples. We don't hear all their stories. Here's what we do know. They were faithful. We do know that ultimately what happened to this all or nothing Peter is he stabilizes. He, he becomes a leader. He becomes mature. He, he ultimately remains faithful and gives his life for the cause of Jesus Christ. What we know is that all of those disciples along this continuum, other than John who lived to old age, they all died a martyr's death. They all died for their faith. They all remained faithful. They were fallible. They were human. They messed it up. They stumbled around. They had unbelievable failures. And yet they found a way in the midst of all of it to be faithful. Listen, we're together in this discipleship. Our humanity, how we're made, how, how we think, the things that happen to us, the questions we ask, the way we, we want to maneuver Jesus, the things we're asking, the impatience that comes with that, the swings in our commitment, and maybe just today our need for affirmation. So here's my question to you. Where do you find yourself? In the middle of a pandemic, as the whole world is just unsettled and there's uncertainty in our future and we don't know what it all looks like, isn't this the place where, where faith takes hold? Isn't this the place where we acknowledge that we're together in discipleship and all of this fallibility and all of this reality and humanity is who we are and it's how we're made? And we're going to find a way to be faithful in the midst of it. We're going, to, we're going to confess and we're going to seek forgiveness and we're going to pick ourselves up and we're going to make new commitments and we're going to try again and we're going to be patient and we're going to know that just on the other side of all of this, there's a breakthrough coming. There's something that Jesus has in mind. There's an Easter reality coming. We're going to live on this side of Easter and not the far side of Easter because that's what we're invited to do. Have you found your true north? Have you found that place in which, in all reality, this is not about some words on a page. This is about a relationship with a loving Father who, who wants to wrap you up and me up, who, who, who lives in relationship and adapts and, and carries us. This, this whole thing may be a surprise to us, but it's not a surprise to God. So I want to close as the band comes back, and I, I, I want to just say a prayer over you as we prepare ourselves for another week 
of doing what God wants us to do. God, I pray for all of those who are joining together in these moments. I ask that you would examine our hearts as we acknowledge that we are interdependent on each other and on you, and that we are interdependent with the saints who have gone before us. That the writer of Hebrews reminds us, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us set aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and so sat down at the right hand of the Father. I pray that you would help each one of us to focus our hearts, our minds, our homes, our families, our anxieties, our fears, our uncertainties around this true north of Jesus Christ. I pray that this reality, this loving, compassionate, understanding God would invade our hearts and minds and homes and families in such a way that each of us would walk this journey with a deep sense of biblical optimism, a deep sense of hope, a deep sense of joy that we are not alone. And you take all of our weaknesses and work them together so that when we are weak, that's when we are strong. And so as God's people, we pray together, come Lord Jesus, come. Lead us in these moments. Bless those who watch and share God. We place them in your hands in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.